Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. The sin of Judah is inscribed with an iron stylus. With a diamond point, it is engraved on the tablet of their hearts and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their Asherah poles by the green trees on the high hills, my mountains in the countryside. I will give up your wealth and all your treasures as plunder because of the sin of your, high pla- of your high places in all your borders. You will, on your own, relinquish your inheritance that I gave you. I will make you serve your enemies in a land you do not know, for you have set my anger on fire. It will burn forever. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. He makes human flesh his strength, and his heart turns from the Lord. He will be like a juniper in the Arabah. He cannot see when good comes, but dwells in the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land where no one lives. The person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out towards a stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. The heart is more deceitful than anything else, and incurable. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Elizabeth. So there, you may notice there are some usual um, young people who are missing from our midst. We have our middle school and high school group. They have been up at uh, the first ever winter retreat for our student ministry. So a number of them have been up there for the last two nights, and they're coming back. I just got a text from Scott saying they, they are coming back. They're due about 11.45 to come back. So we, our family, me and my wife, Amelia, we have four kids. Two of them are up there, are on their way back, uh, coming back from Idlewild. And we've gone out. Oh, wait, there's one right there. He's back already. Maybe I shouldn't say this then, but I'm going to say it anyway. It was, it was kind of nice being a family of four for a little bit because we... <laughs> We, we got to go to Chick-fil-A, and I'm like, oh, we get to sit like in a regular seat in a regular booth. Usually we have to find like the biggest table and all that. But so parents, ready or not, they're coming. They're coming back at 11.45, and they're on time. This morning we're starting a new series for the season of Lent. Um, we've been talking about Lent quite a bit here in the service. This is the first Sunday of Lent, and if Lent is something new for you... Um, I want you to know there, there's no pressure to be all Lenty if you're not there yet with us. Uh, but we believe Lent is actually a great gift. Uh, we, all have, we all have calendars, right? So calendars structure our lives. We have our personal calendar. Um, there is a commercial calendar that structures a lot of our lives, like uh, Christmas, New Year's. We just had Valentine's Day. Anytime you walk into a Target, the first thing you see, it'll tell you what time of year it is, right? We walked in yesterday, there's St. Patrick's Day and Easter. 
uh, and all those things. Uh, there's good in all those holidays, but they're often very commercialized. They're just another way for people to make money off of us and for us to purchase. So there's commercial calendars. There's the financial calendar. Maybe that structures your life. Maybe it's sports. The sports calendar uh, is what you live by or the school calendar. Lent is, is just one important piece of a gospel calendar, how our time is structured, how time is actually sanctified by the story of the gospel. And this Lent, we're doing a series on questions. And for me, encouraging questions, respecting questions, valuing and addressing questions is one of the most important things that a pastor can do and that a church can do. One of the worst things that I hear, and I hear it very often, is people sharing their experience in a church, maybe with a group of Christians, and they've shared with me, many people have said this, my questions, I had questions about Jesus. I had questions about the Bible and about God, and those questions were not welcome. Those questions were turned away. To me, that's one of the most tragic things I can hear as a pastor, and I, and I pray and hope it's our vision that Trinity would not be a church like that. Because in the Christian faith, we're meant to ask questions, we're meant to follow our questions, and we can have great confidence that those questions ultimately lead us closer to God. But this series is not going to be about those questions. We're going to be flipping this around. This series is about the questions that God asks us. And He does this in many places throughout the Bible. And we're going to be looking at six of the most probing questions, some of the most poignant questions that God asks us in the Scriptures. In Genesis 3, He asks Adam and Eve, where are you? Uh, in 1 Kings 18, 19, He asks Elijah the prophet who had fled to a cave. He said, why are you here? These are going to be some of the questions we are going to look at. Now, why, why this series? Why, why these questions? Lent is a time for examination. It's a time for us to ask important questions about our lives. Questions like, where am I spiritually? How would I answer that question? How do I even know? Are there areas of growth that God is calling um, His attention to in my life and my attention to? Areas that need more transformation. What is God doing in me? What does He want to do? What is He developing in me? What, he, what might God be preparing me for at this season in my life? Whenever God asks a question, we're going to see this in all six of these questions. Whenever God asks a question in the Bible, we know it's not for Him to gain information, right? He already knows the human heart. That's what this text is going to be about. It's not, it's not for His sake to gain information, but it's for us to spend time in examination, and it's for our own transformation. Um, when it comes to exams and tests, for some of you, if I say the word exam or test, you're just like, I, I don't like that word. I don't like tests. Who loves tests? Yes, I saw a teacher. I'm going to talk to teachers in just a minute. It's a topic our family talks a lot about, tests, exams. We have four boys. They're all in grade school, kindergarten to seventh grade. And one of, whenever one of my boys gets a bad grade and they're disappointed about it, I just try to frame the whole idea of an exam or a grade differently for them. That the purpose of an exam, the purpose of a test is not just to get your grade and then move on. 
right? Really, the grade is not the point. The purpose of an exam or a test is to show you what you've learned. The test shows you areas where you need to grow. Have you grasped the material? And are you ready uh, to move on to other things? Isn't that right, teachers? That's the purpose of an exam. So a good grade, that tells you something. But a bad grade is also not the end of the world because that tells you, okay, I have more to learn. It's showing me where I'm at with this particular subject. Parents, you might say, no, no, it's about the A. It's just about the A. No, but it's not. It, teachers, you're on my side here. That grades, a good grade is supposed to show us that we're learning not so good. We've got areas to grow. So these six messages during Lent, it's like six exam questions for our souls to be thinking about, and that's good for us. Today, the question we're going to be looking at is, who can understand the human heart? It's right there in the passage that was read for us in Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. That question, who can understand the human heart? It's a question that we all wrestle with, we all grapple with, no matter where we're at in our journey of faith. We always, we always come to these moments in our lives, we all do, when we, we, we see the behavior of people, we're in relationship with people, and we're just like, I don't get you. Why do you do what you do? Or we're looking at ourselves and we say, well, why, why do I do what I do. There's things I want to do. There's things I say that is, this is important for me to do and to fulfill, and yet I don't do it. Instead, I act in a different way. Why is that? I don't understand other people. I don't understand myself. So the question we'll be looking at today brings all that together into that one question that God asks, who can understand the human heart? It's a rhetorical question, but in this case, God also gives the answer to it. He says, it's me that I search, could be translated, I I examine, I examine the heart, he says. I test the heart and the mind. As we look at this passage, there's a lot going on in Jeremiah 17. We're going to look at four aspects of God's question and God's answer, who can understand the human heart. We're going to look at the centrality of the heart, the, the condition of the heart, the cure for the heart, and the care for the heart. So let's, let's look first at the centrality of the heart. We need some context here because we're just jumping right into the middle of a, of a book, the prophet Jeremiah's book. Uh, Jeremiah was a prophet to the people of Judah before and during the exile in the late uh, 500s BC. This was a time for the people of Judah where they were on the brink of disaster. They were on the brink of judgment. And Jeremiah was a prophet who was warning them that this was going to happen and giving them an opportunity to turn and to repent. Jeremiah was mentioned twice in our text last week, a final series or a final sermon in the series on Chronicles, if you were with us. I didn't have time to talk about it, but there in 2 Chronicles 36, it's mentioned twice. Jeremiah is mentioned twice. Once when it says, Judah departed from the land in exile. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. And then the next verse, 2 Chronicles 36, 22, says, when they returned, that also fulfilled the word of the prophet Jeremiah. So Jeremiah's message was like all of the prophets in the Old Testament, their big message was twofold. It was a message of sober judgment on the one hand, but a greater hope to come beyond that judgment. A time of exile and discipline but a time of return, a time of restoration, 
like nothing had ever been seen before. Jeremiah, he's called the weeping prophet. This is what makes him distinct amongst all the prophets because in his ministry, he was called to embody and to demonstrate and to feel the pathos of God in delivering this prophetic message to his people. He wore on his sleeve, as it were, the emotion and the heart of God as he was calling them back to himself. There's a picture I want to share. This is a Rembrandt picture of Jeremiah. Just to get a sense, I don't know if you can see that so well, but Jeremiah is pictured there by Rembrandt on the outside of the city. In the back, the city uh, is entering into its time of judgment. The king is walking out of the city, and there he is, forlorn, and his face is full of sorrow. That's the prophet Jeremiah. We're entering right into the middle of it. Chapters 1 through 16, all the chapters preceding this chapter, they're all about Jeremiah saying, wake up, wake up. Spiritually, you've turned away from the Lord. So we've got 16 chapters of a call to repentance. We come to Jeremiah 17. It's a bit, I didn't realize this week, but as I was studying it, this chapter is a puzzle to scholars of the book of Jeremiah. They, they call it, a lot of them call it miscellaneous thoughts by Jeremiah because they don't really know what to do with it. What is, this, what is this chapter all about? It seems disconnected at first, but some say, and I agree with them, that there is actually a very strong connection in this chapter between all these verses, especially the first 13 that we read or the first 10 that we read. The whole chapter is connected by one key word, and that word is heart. The heart. If you're taking notes and you have a pencil or a pen, just underline the heart. In verse 1, underline the word heart. It's there at the very beginning of the, of the text. It's engraved on the tablet of their hearts. In verse 5, the heart comes up again in the second section. His heart turns from the Lord. And there in verse 9, in the question that we're exploring, the heart is more deceitful than anything else. The word heart is the word that connects the whole passage. So in Jeremiah chapter 17, he's stepping back, so he's getting to the root. He's getting to the source of everything that's happening in the life of the people during this time. They were thinking outwardly, looking around them, is it really that bad? Why is this prophet weeping? Why is he, why is he doing these crazy things? Why is he embodying this sorrow? Because they were looking around and going, I don't really know if it's all that bad, things are okay. So why is he so serious? Jeremiah 17 says, don't look at how things are outwardly. Examine your hearts. And if you do, you'll see why God is so passionate to call you back. In the Bible, the word heart, it's obviously not just our, it's our, not our physical heart, physiologically. The heart is the seed of our emotions, our will. It's where our thoughts and commitments and affections all come together to make us who we are and to shape what we do. So it's the center of our being. God examines and looks then at our inward reality over our outward behavior and our external actions because the heart, the heart is the center of a person. So a quick word of application. In order to know where we are, in order to grow, to learn, to change, we need to start with the deep heart exam. That's the center of who we are. That's where 
the decisions, our behavior. That's where it all comes from. If we're just looking at the outward behavior, if we're looking at the externals, it won't tell us where we are. It won't lead to lasting growth or change. So we need to get deep. We need to get as deep and as central to the human person as we can. But when it comes to issues and problems in our lives, relationships, struggles in relationships, even our relationship with God, we all have a tendency to want to remain on the surface. Just tell me what to do. Give me something that I can implement tomorrow. Hopefully it's quick. Hopefully it doesn't hurt. Hopefully it's not painful and costly. Now, I know we have some dentists here at the church. I think some are, are here with us this morning. And if you're a dentist, you know there's a difference between a normal cleaning and a deep cleaning, right? I don't know if some of you have had both of those. Normal cleanings hurt, usually. I know you dentists are good at, at not causing pain. But they have their tino, that, that tiny little uh, metal pick. It's like this little torture pick, and they have to use that to clean, and you know, okay, I can get through that. But then there's a deep cleaning, and that cleaning hurts even worse because that tiny pick is like digging even deeper into the gums. I've had the deep cleaning, by the way. And it digs deep, and it's painful, and there's blood everywhere, and it's not fun. Well, when we first moved here, we were looking for a dentist, and um, we just found one that was close and said, all right, let me just try out this dentist. We We need a new dentist. And I sat down, and they did the exam, and they said, you need a deep cleaning. And that's more expensive, and it takes more time. And I'm like, no, let's just do normal. I just didn't want to have that pain. Like, no, no, we cannot do that. We have to, like the laws are in the insurances, we have to do a deep cleaning. And so I just got up and walked out. I'm like, no, I don't want a deep cleaning. And then later on, I went to my dentist in San Diego. She was like, yeah, you kind of really did need a deep cleaning. Why do I bring that up? Well, I know that's besides an embarrassing illustration of my need for dental hygiene. The point is that many of us approach the things in our lives in the same way. So just give me a surface cleaning. I don't need a deep cleaning. That's how often we approach our relationship with God. But we need to get deep into the level of the heart. The heart is the center. The heart is where change happens. And if the heart is central, then we need to know our hearts. And that's what Jeremiah shows us in verses 1 through 8. These first eight verses, if you can glance at them with me, they give us two different pictures that take us beneath the surface into the center of our hearts, into our inner world to describe our hearts and to diagnose them. Jeremiah gives us these two pictures. Verses 1 through 4, he says, the heart is like a tablet. It's like your inner tablet. In verses 5 through 8, he says, your heart is like a root of your lives and the image is of a tree. So it's a tablet and it's a tree. Both move us to look beyond appearance, to get deeper into the center of our lives. Let's look at each one of these pictures. Verse, verses four, um, the first four verses, tablet. Now, this is not like an iPod tablet, but this is the old school tablet back in the ancient world, which was a stone tablet. It says there in verse 1, the sin of Judah is inscribed with an iron stylus with a diamond point. And there's the image that in each and every heart there is a stone tablet and something is inscribed on the heart. And the question is, 
What is it? What messages, what beliefs, what values are inscribed on my heart? The more that we live out of these messages, the more that we live out of these beliefs and values, the further they're ingrained. And so the grooves get deeper and it becomes the permanent message inscribed on our heart. That's the picture here. The strength of a diamond, diamonds are used to carve. There's diamond tip saws that are used to cut through stone and metal. So Jeremiah is painting a picture here that there's something powerful going on in each human heart. There's a message being engraved. And there's an implied contrast here because as Jeremiah uses this language, engraved on the tablet of the human heart, he's recalling the Ten Commandments that describe for us the life of love for God and love for neighbor. These commandments were engraved on tablets. Exodus, Deuteronomy, other passages tell us, on tablets of stone. And so Jeremiah is saying, instead of love for God and neighbor being inscribed on the heart, he says sin is described on the heart. Now notice something interesting here. He doesn't say sins, plural. But he says sin is engraved on the heart. Why is that? Well, Jeremiah is talking beyond the surface of the sins that we commit to what's happening at the core and the center of our being. It's not primarily about our behaviors, but about the relational direction of our heart. Is it turned towards God or away from Him? He says in verse 1, sin is not just inscribed on their hearts, but also on the horns of their altars. What is the horns of their altars? What What is that all about? Well, the altar in the temple, in the sacrificial system of Israel, was supposed to be the place of atonement and refuge and sanctuary. But because the heart wasn't right, even their act of worship wasn't right. It was full of hypocrisy. Externally, they were doing the right religious things, but Jeremiah says the sin on your heart is so inscribed, it's inscribed even in your worship, even in your empty religious act. Jesus spoke similarly when he said in Mark chapter 7, he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. He called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. They were clean on the outside, but dead on the inside. And so on the surface, externally, you can look very, very religious, but have a heart far from God. So the application for us is to ask, what messages, what beliefs, what values are inscribed on my heart? But how do we know? How do we know what's truly inscribed and engraved on our hearts? How do we tell? Well, the text gives us one way that we can tell. It's to look at the influence that we have on the people closest to us. Where is that in the passage? If you look at verse 2, it says, This sin is engraved on their heart, verse 1, while their children remember their altars, their Asherah poles by the green trees on the high hills, and it goes on. What is this about the children and the Asherah poles? What does this mean? It means that the people were passing down to their kids their real heart beliefs and commitments. In their case, it wasn't love for God and neighbor, but it was their worship of these idols. They were called the Asherah. The idolatry of their day, the Asherahs promised prosperity. These were the fertility cult. They promised wealth, fertility, 
and prosperity, comfort and abundance. They were looking to these things. And verse 4 says they were dropping what God had given them in order to chase after these idols. And Jeremiah says, this is what your children will remember about you. It's very challenging, my Christian friends. It forces us to ask my kids, for parents, spouses, friends, family, co-workers, what would they say matters most to me? What influence is rubbing off on them? Jeremiah says, in this time and for this people, it wasn't love for God and neighbor, but a love for comfort, a love for prosperity. So that first image, the tablet says, their, their heart was hardened. It was engraved with the wrong things. And then in verses 5 through 8, we see the next picture. It diagnoses our heart condition using the image of a tree. And the heart is essentially at the root of that tree. So five through eight give us the pictures of two different trees. One is a tree in the desert, the juniper tree, and another is a flourishing tree by water. One is the heart that trusts in mankind and human strength and ability, and the other one is the heart that trusts in God. It's getting... This picture is getting deep into our hearts to ask us, what is the object of our faith? And that the human heart, it's not a question of faith or no faith. It's a question of what our faith is in. What are we trusting in? What are we looking to for life and meaning and strength? And as Jeremiah contrasts these two pictures, he's describing again the essence of sin, that it's substituting ourselves for God. How does this play out in our lives? Let's look at these images. He says the first tree, if you're trusting in yourself, if your heart is looking to itself for its own resources and strength for life, on the outside you can look fine, but on the inside you're not. It's a desert juniper tree. I had to figure out what, what, is, what does this look like. Let's move on to the next slide. I have a picture of a juniper tree in the desert. Let's see if we can get that picture up. It's coming. There it is. So, there it is. There's the juniper tree in the Arabah. That's, that's a good tree. Looks like it's doing fine. It's a fine-looking tree. The tree in the desert. Look how Jeremiah describes it, though. Because it's looking good on the outside, but the heart that trusts in itself and its own resources is a heart that he says in verse 6, cannot see good when it comes. That the good that comes, the good that we're living for, it's fleeting and short-lived. We come to these moments where we say, where's everything I worked so hard for? I thought it was here. Now that it's here, I can't even see it. And then he says he dwells in the parched places in the wilderness. That's a, that's a picture of thirst. You're parched. Even though you look like you're doing okay on the outside, inside you're thirsty. You're longing for something that you don't have. And then the third description, it's in a salt land where no one lives. You're surviving, but you're lonely. You're not really known. You don't really bring yourself into relationships. You're isolated. So in summary, he says, this desert juniper tree looks okay outwardly, but inward, it's like a desert, barely surviving. And when we experience that, we're meant to ask, well, what is my heart leaning on? What is my heart trusting in? 
Where am I looking for strength? The second tree, in contrast, is the heart that trusts in God. Planted by water, the roots drink deeply. Life is not driven by fear or worry. Remaining rooted and stable in suffering and in difficulty. And he says, no matter what's happening in your life, you're bearing fruit. That you're showing the character of love for God and love for neighbor, even in the midst of suffering. So in summary, these two two images are meant to show us the condition of our hearts. Jeremiah is saying here, here's the diagnosis for the human heart. It's hardened. It's engraved deeply with the wrong messages. And it's rooted in the wrong place. It's rooted in self-salvation rather than turning and trusting in God. So if the heart is central, it's where everything happens. It's where our lives are determined. And if the condition of our hearts is that they're hardened and rooted in the wrong places, what's the cure? How do our hearts change? Well, here's where the question that God asks comes in. He diagnoses our heart condition, and then He asks the question to us, That forces us to ask, well, what's the cure? He says in verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? At first, this question seems like it's leading us further away from a cure, but let me explain how it leads us to a cure. God says, the human heart, it's deceitful. That each of us are experts in dodging the truth, misrepresenting the truth, and hiding from the truth about ourselves. And it's beyond our understanding. We don't know and we can't know on our own or by ourselves what's really written on our hearts and what our heart is really rooted in. In verse 10, God says, well, let me give you the answer to the question that I ask. It's me. The I there is an emphatic I. Who can understand the heart? I can. Only I can. God is the only one who knows our hearts. He's the one who can examine our hearts and show us what's there. What Jeremiah is doing here, he's ruling out two of our most common cures that we use for dealing with our hearts. One of those cures is salvation by self-understanding, and the other cure is salvation by self-effort. One says, follow your heart. The other one says, master your heart. If we say follow our heart, we say the path to salvation and flourishing is a life of self-awareness and self-expression. If I can understand who I am and how I got this way, and if I can understand my past and I can embrace my identity, and then I can accept myself, I can overcome obstacles in my life, and I can be true to my heart. This is the path of salvation that is fairly common in our culture, embedded in many of the stories that we tell at the end of the day. It's follow your heart. Follow your heart and you will be saved. Jeremiah challenges that. He says, how do I know my heart is to be trusted? What if following my heart leads me to hurt others? What if my heart changes? Then does my identity change? Our self-understanding is very elusive. How do I know if I've accurately understood myself? Which heart do I follow? Sometimes we have a, a contradiction within ourselves. We don't know what we should do. And rarely does following our heart lead to sacrificial service. I heard one um, pastor describe it like this. He said, 
If you are familiar with the, the Pirates of the Caribbean series of movies, I know the first one was the only good one, but there's like this compass, right? There's a compass that Jack Sparrow has, and the compass points you in the direction of your greatest heart's desire, right? That's the Jack Sparrow heart. So to follow our heart is to have that compass and say, that's what I need to pursue. That's where I need to go. But is that the kind of world that we want to live in, where everybody follows their Jack Sparrow compass? I don't know if that world would have a lot of service and self-sacrifice. Jeremiah says, self-understanding is not the cure. Salvation by self-understanding is not the cure. But neither is salvation by self-effort. Some people say it's not about following your heart. Instead, it's about mastering your heart. This is those people who have a religious approach to life. They say, here, just tell me what to do, and I will do it. Your heart doesn't control you. You control your heart. The path to salvation is not self-awareness or knowing or following your heart, but self-mastery. The religious person, person says, I will control my heart. I can manage my struggles, my emotions, my sin by knowing the right thing to do and doing it. But Jeremiah says that doesn't work either because the heart is deceitful. It's incurable. And what the human heart excels best at is religious hypocrisy of doing all the right things while inside it's a desert and it's dying. And that's the worst sickness and disease of all because it can harden and deceive us into thinking we are okay when we're not. Both these approaches look very different when we describe them, and they look very different on the outside, but at the root, they're both the same. They're both ways that we say, I don't need God. Don't follow your heart. Don't try to control your heart, Jeremiah says, so what's the cure? The cure is that the hardened heart must be broken, and the heart turned away must be turned back. Here in verse 10, it seems rather hopeless. God examines the heart. He says it's incurable, it's sick, it's deceitful. Then he says, I'll give everyone according to your ways. You're judged by the fruit of your lives. So it seems hopeless. If my heart is sick, if I'm turned the wrong way, and God is going to judge me, what hope is there? But we need to understand how the prophets work. We're reading the prophets all year long in CBR. We're going to spend a lot of time in them. But the prophets spend a lot of time on the diagnosis, on the examination, and the prognosis. They say this isn't good. But all the prophets, every single one of them, also speak of the cure for the human heart, a cure for sin, not just a treatment of the symptoms, but a deep and lasting cure for the human heart. In Jeremiah, it takes a while for him to get there. But in Jeremiah 30 through 33, he writes what's called his book of comfort. He comes back to the topic of the human heart there. In Jeremiah 30, verse 12, it says, your hurt is incurable. He's bringing up the same language. It's sick and it's incurable. And then in verse 17, he says, though, but I will restore health to you. Your wounds I will heal. I will cure it. How will this happen? In verse 31, or chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, here's what Jeremiah says. He says, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, this will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them to the, by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. 
my covenant that they broke, even though I am their master. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my teaching within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Jeremiah says, here's the problem. What was written on the tablets of the law was never written on the tablets of the heart. The problem is not that the law needed to be changed, but the human heart needed to be changed. How does this happen? There's an old story, an old Jewish story, of a student and a rabbi. The student asks the rabbi, why does the Torah, why does the law say that we should write the words of God upon our hearts? Why doesn't it say to place these words in our hearts? The rabbi said to the student, it is because as we are, our hearts are hardened, and we cannot place them inside. So place them on top of our hearts, and there they stay until one day the heart breaks and the words fall in. What will break the human heart? What will turn the human heart? Jeremiah 31 says, The heart is not broken by the force of the law and judgment, but by the force of God's unbreakable love for us. The cure is a reversal of Jeremiah 17. Sin is substituting ourselves for God. The cure is when God substitutes himself for us. And that's the message of Christianity. If you look back at Jeremiah 17, verses 1 through 4, we see a great reversal happening in the chapter. When we look at Jesus, when we look to the cross, we see that Jesus lost all his treasures, his wealth, his inheritance as God's son to serve his enemies who were us to take the burning anger of God in our place. That's a description of what happened on the cross. In verse 4, the curse that was pronounced against the people for their hardened heart, Jesus bore that curse for us. Galatians says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. The one and the only one who lived fully turned to God with a pure heart, who deserved the blessed life, the flourishing life, he chose to experience the curse at its worst for us. He experienced the life of this desert tree. Although he deserved the good, he didn't see the good come to him. But he saw judgment, rejection, and injustice. He, the one who was living water while he was on the cross, said, I am thirsty. He was parched. He was deeply parched in his soul because he was bearing the punishment for our sin that we deserved. And he was betrayed. He was lonely. His closest friends left him, betrayed him, and he experienced loneliness in its deepest depths when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Jesus, we see the great reversal of Jeremiah 17. Why did he do this? Why did he take our place? This is not by the force of law that our hearts are broken and turned, but by the force of his love. 
That's why we sing and we sang, break us by the power of your grace. At the cross, we see sin for what it is. We see our hearts for what they are. Nothing else could cure them but the suffering of God himself. And we see God's love for those whose hearts are hardened and diseased and sickened by sin. That's what breaks the heart. That's what turns the heart. God knows the fullness of the junk of our hearts more than we do, and yet He doesn't recoil, but He draws near. He loves us enough to endure the curse in our place. He knows the full extent that we try to hide our sins. He sees it all, and yet He still loves us. That kind of love breaks us. That kind of love inscribes new messages and engraves new commitments onto the human heart. So what is engraved on the human heart is now we are forgiven. I am loved. I am worthy to God, and I am His. And the more that we rehearse that message, the more it becomes the message that is written on our hearts. Let me close just with a few applications here for the season of Lent. We've looked at the centrality of the heart. It's the center of our person. We've looked at the condition of our heart and the cure for our hearts. But how do we care for our hearts? In Jeremiah, he says, the law of God is written on the heart. The prophet Ezekiel says something similar. He says, I will take out the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. We've been given a new heart. There's been new things written on our hearts, the law of love for God and neighbor. But at the same time, our hearts are not wholly and fully new yet. We are already new, but not yet fully new. And so Lent is a season for heart care. And the care is the same as the cure. A couple ways that we can practice this. One is through examination. During this season of Lent, to bring our hearts before God to be examined. Often this is called the discipline of self-examination. That's probably a misnomer given our text that we can't even understand our hearts So we need God to search us. In Psalm 139, the psalmist says, God, search me and know me. Test my heart. See what's in there. Lent is a season for us to put that into practice more regularly. God, to pray that prayer from Psalm 139, search me, examine my heart, show me what's there. So to have our, our hearts examined, but also to have our hearts broken through confession and turning to Jesus. It's the inscribing of the gospel on our hearts that will inscribe the law on our hearts. Our hearts will want the same things God's heart wants. And so we bring our need, we bring our brokenness and confession to God and also to others in community. This is what should be happening in our community groups. Not the wallowing in sin, not just the saying in confession, but the inscribing of the gospel on each other's hearts. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are God's. Who can understand the heart? God asks. God alone. And as we look to Jesus, as God examines us, as we gaze upon Him, our hearts are broken and made new. Amen.